The Poetry of Truth, Reflections on the Gospel of Luke, narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum, Part 6. I should say that I'm not interpreting the gospel or trying to in any any definitive way. The beauty, beauty of the lectionary cycle is that every three years you come back to these texts and you should be, and you should see things in them you didn't see before. So anybody who tries to come up with a definitive interpretation doesn't understand what the paraclete is all about. The paraclete is moving through history, and as we go through history with these texts, that's another reason why we have a fixed canon. We need to come back to these texts. They're inexhaustible, and we need to keep going deeper and deeper. So it's that that old thing about uh, you're more likely to hit water by drilling one well 100 feet deep than by drilling 10, 10 feet each. So that's the biblical tradition keeps coming back to these things and going deeper. And if we take up the Gospel of Luke in another few years, if, if we've uh, been uh, available for the promptings of the Holy Spirit, we should discover entirely different things about it. So I'm not trying to do anything definitive. What's fascinating to me this time through, and what I didn't even anticipate as a, a source of fascination, is the Gospel's understanding, particularly the Gospel of Luke's understanding, it seems to me, of the epistemological revolution that the cross represents. Now, I've talked about that. Epistemology just means the way we know things. For example, in an epistemological approach, you could say a construct, an epistemological construct, is one that allows us to see certain things and other things we can't see. You know, if you if you take your dog for a walk in the woods and suddenly the dog goes off, that's because he smells something you can't smell or he hears something you can't hear. Uh, he, he has a different epistemology. And, or you could say, well, if we live, if we have a flat earth, uh, we live in a world that presumes a flat earth, there's certain things we don't see or a heliocentric or a geocentric uh, universe. There's certain things we don't see and if we see them, we can't, they, we can't make any sense of them. And so... An epistemological revolution is one in which suddenly everything shifts and there are openings that before that happened were not there. And what I've tried to say about about the famous, particularly in the Gospel of Mark but in, in Luke as well, the famous uh, um, uh, density of the apostles with respect to the message of Jesus particularly the message that the, son, that, the, that the Son of God would have to suffer and die at the hands of others. He said that to them absolutely explicitly, and two minutes later, they act as though they didn't hear it. It didn't compute. They can't see that, you see. Of course, it all comes to the cross. The cross is the turning point in history, and I think that's true epistemologically, intellectually, as, as much as it is uh, spiritually and anthropologically, and uh, and so on. So it seems to me that what the cross does is that it demythologizes or uh, interrupts the old mythological machinery, uh, which was generated by an, an event that was structurally identical to the crucifixion. Uh, so it exposes the perversities of the old sacred system. That's that's the sort of negative aspect of its epistemological breakthrough. And the positive is 
that it shows us the living God. And it shows us the living God in a Trinitarian way. The Trinity didn't develop until later, but it developed out of fidelity to the New Testament revelation. And so I say that because I say that in part because I want to read you something about the Trinity before we get started there. Uh, but I think it's increasingly, as you deep, go deeper into the Gospels, you realize that the doctrine of the Trinity was by no means a, 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 a curious appendage to these texts, but it was uh, it was demanded by them, uh, and that and that uh, the epistemological revolution, just as the spiritual and anthropological one of the of the New Testament, is fundamentally Trinitarian. That's a little obscure, but what I want to do today is, and not particularly because it absolutely fits right here, but because for some reason it came to me, let's put it that way. Uh, so I want to share something about the doctrine of the Trinity, which I thought of in connection with this epistemological uh, revolution, because this is from a, this is from a, a marvelous text by a German theologian whose name is Walter Casper, and he does a very erudite analysis of the history of the development of the doctrine of the Trinity, and it's very detailed, scholarly, and so on, but it's quite fascinating because it's faithful, and one reads it uh, with, a, with a sense of... Um, it, it, I mean, this sounds like I'm overstating it, but sometimes it's almost breathtaking to see how uh, the Christian community was was being led out of a particular kind of uh, epistemological box into the freedom that the gospel promises, uh, even at the intellectual level. So anyway. It's fascinating to me. So I want to read this little passage as a kind of historical backdrop for something, the epicenter of which is the New Testament. Here's what Casper says. Now, he, so he's talking about the the debates, the intellectual uh, uh, wars that went on, more or less, saying it too harshly, I guess. Uh, but, you know, theology is not it's like you know sausages you don't want to watch it being made <laughs> it can be a pretty messy process <laughs> and so uh, there's a lot of stuff that goes into it I mean it ends up it has to do, it ends up in all the human sinfulness and funny business nevertheless if the spirit is present uh, the sinfulness and the funny business and the egotism and the arrogance and the intellectual pride and the da-da-da-da-da. Uh, these things all get ground down by the, uh, you know, they become grist for the Holy Spirit's mill. So, Casper catalogs this, this process of developing the, the Trinitarian theology. And he says this, quote, these passionate debates were not involved in useless hair-splitting and conceptual quibbles. Their aim was the greatest possible fidelity and exactitude in the interpretation of the biblical datum. 
This biblical datum was so new and unparalleled that it turned all traditional conceptual thinking upside down. See, this is what I want to stress. It turned all traditional conceptual thinking upside down. It was therefore by no means enough simply to apply concepts from Greek philosophy to the traditional confession of faith. All such attempts ended in heresy. And sometimes you see this, you know, people say, well, theology, Christian theology developed out of the, the you, you just take uh, the Hebraic uh, scriptural uh, tradition and you throw in a little Greek philosophy and you shake it up and you get uh, Christian theology. Casper says, not at all. Every attempt to simply apply Greek philosophical ideas to, to, the, to the Christian revelation ended in heresy. And then he says, the need in this debate, the need was to reflect on the data of Scripture and tradition and to break away from the one-sidedly essentialist thinking of Greek philosophy and into a personalist thinking that did justice to the Scripture, thus laying the foundation for a new type of thought. A new type of thought. This is the epistemological breakthrough. In other words, the epistemological breakthrough, like everything else, happened decisively at the moment of the crucifixion. And that's why when we get to Luke 23 and, it, and the centurion says oh, he was a righteous man and the crowd that had come for the spectacle turns, sees what happens, go, turns and goes home beating his breast. We see that that involves not only a moral but an epistemological breakthrough. It happens decisively right then. On the other hand, it has to be worked out in history. So the paraclete is always working this out. So the, so the, uh, all the intellectual firepower that went into generating the, uh, or uh, uh, developing the doctrine of the Trinity was the working out by the Holy Spirit of a new type of thought. And then the last thing from Casper, he says, from the theological standpoint, this shift made it possible to bring out the specifically Christian form of monotheism as distinct from that of either Judaism or paganism. And the distinctively Christian form of monotheism is Trinitarian monotheism. It's not monolithic monotheism of Judaism, and it's not the polytheism of a pagan world. Well, that's the backdrop. And whether or not the things that I'm about to get into will refer explicitly to that backdrop or not, I'm not sure at this point, but I, I, I want to place that backdrop there as a way of highlighting the epistemological revolution that the scriptures document. As chapter 11 begins, we have Luke's version of the Lord's Prayer, which is a small version of it, a short version of it. But Perhaps we can put it better into context by going back and just rehearsing a little thing we did last week, and that is, you know, the lawyer says uh, to Jesus, what do I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, what do the scriptures say? And the scriptures say that you should love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and your neighbor as yourself. And uh, Jesus says, you got it, do it. 
and then the lawyer wanting to justify himself, which I argued is an indication that he has that he, he has uh, failed the first half of that commandment. Because if you're if you if you love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, you don't have an itch to justify yourself. That's the great liberation that uh, that having uh, having prayer at the center of your life. Uh, uh, brings about. But in any event, he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, who is my neighbor? Forgetting the first half of the commandment, who is my neighbor? And then we have those two stories, the, the story of the um, Good Samaritan and the story of Martha and Mary. In Martha and Mary, we have Mary sitting at Jesus' feet. It's making up for what the lawyer didn't see. The first part of the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, and then love your neighbor as yourself. So again, you have these two aspects of the commandment, great commandment, sort of echoing through the scriptures all the time, the New Testament particularly. And so when we get to the Lord's Prayer, we get another version of that. Uh, it says Jesus is at prayer, but Luke and Jesus is often at prayer, much more so than the Jesus of the other Gospels, or at least to the other two um, synoptics. And his disciples see him at prayer, and they say, teach us how to pray. John taught his disciples how to pray. You teach us how to pray. And this is, an this is just a straightforward example of them wanting to be like him and realizing that he was, that, that prayer was who he was. That to be like him, one had to do, it wasn't, you, did you try to walk like him or talk like him or wear the same sandals or kind of way we do it? No, they realized that it was prayer that made, that was the, that was the key to who he was. So they said, teach us how to pray. And so he said, and this I say, as, as I said, it's a short version, Father, hallowed be your name, or sanctified be your name, your kingdom come. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we ourselves forgive everyone indebted to us, and do not bring us to the time of trial. So, a couple of things about this. We've all heard many things about it, and I don't have any particularly weighty things to offer. Uh, but things we should notice. The first is it begins with an appeal to the to God. Prayer is a prayer to God. It addresses another. It addresses the other. In this case, so that's, by the way, it's it's obvious and assumed, but we have to stop and think about that. It really is an address to another. Uh, and Jesus' prayer is addressed to the Father. It's intimate. The other has become intimate. Not because the other is intimate without Christ, but because with through him, through his mediation, that God becomes intimate. Intimate relationship is possible. Hallowed be your name, I think, means I should say this. For me, hallowed be thy name means let my life be used as an instrument for your self-revelation. Now that's a tremendous, that borders on total arrogance. There's a, there's a prayer in the, in the Eucharist which is, we thank you for letting us stand in your presence and serve you. And to me, that's a 
would be a synonym for hallowed be thy name, something like that. Your kingdom come. It's very important that the eschatological horizon be in sight in Christian life. Because otherwise we panic, we fall into, we, you, you see what's happening in history, uh, and it seems uh, we, we get caught up in it, and we should always be dealing with it, facing it, not fleeing from it into some kind of otherworldliness. But on the other hand, the eschatological horizon allows us to confront these historical things without being swept up in them or scandalized by them or intimidated by their scope or something like that. So your kingdom come is, a, is a, I think, an invocation of that kind of eschatological horizon. And our daily bread would be not only Eucharistic, this is a reference not only to material, but to Eucharistic, uh, our, our needs as Eucharistic people, as uh, people in need of, of the mediation of the Eucharist and the nurturing of the Eucharist. So, but, but I think it also it means our dependence. We aren't going to, it's just, this is like manna, you know. We're not going to, it's not a question of going out and earning our bread, as we say. There's that, but at the deeper level, it's dependence. We receive the bread of life. And so we put ourselves in the position of receiving the bread of life. And finally, the forgiveness of sins. To forgive sins and forgive others for sins. So then it, start, so it starts off with an absolutely transcendent focus, which has an eschatological horizon and a dependence on God. And then it comes down into the human world. And what's the business in the human world? The business in the human world is to forgive and be forgiven. To forgive and be forgiven. That's it. it doesn't, there's not a long laundry list here of all the things we need to do. We need to forgive and be forgiven. There's something about this, the problem of unforgiveness. See, this, it, it's, it's, as, it's as though the, the prayer is telling us, look, when you look out and you see the mess the world's in, it looks for all the world, when you first look at it, that the problem is that it hasn't been condemned enough. It hasn't been sternly rebuked enough. And that's not altogether wrong, I think. I think the sort of, I'm okay, you're okay, live and let live, uh, you can, that's your life, you can do anything you want to with it, etc. I think that's a total cop-out. It's a total sell-out. So I think we have to make moral stands. But fundamentally, the problem is unforgiveness. So when we make a moral stand and we... And, and we uh, try to encourage ourselves and others to uh, come to grips with uh, moral mandates or moral uh, standards that should always be in order that we can experience forgiveness because that's the point. I mean, the problem with the world is there's too many unforgiven people running loose in it <laughs> and we got to do something about it, you know. <laughs> right. So, but, oh, one other thing I would say about the prayer, and that is we have to connect these things. 
just as you could say about the first commandment, love the Lord your God with all your mind, heart, and soul, love your neighbor as yourself. If you try to do the second without the first, you will screw things up. And likewise, if we try to forgive and be forgiven without this relationship to the Heavenly Father, to speak in Christian terms, we will screw it up. We'll end up writing books saying, I'm okay, you're okay. It won't, it won't amount to a hill of beans. We'll go around saying, oh, we got to get rid of these guilt feelings. And that's the opposite of forgiveness, you know. So we have, those things have to be related. And if we are in touch with the living God, then the forgiveness can happen. And if we experience forgiveness, it puts us more in touch with the living God. We realize we're, these are our brothers and sisters. We're not living in a world of, that's separated between the good guys and the bad guys. We're all in this thing together. Okay, so there's that. And then there's a little follow-on about prayer here. I want to touch on it because it's subtly, almost secretly, Trinitarian. But we don't notice it. Jesus says, talking about prayer, suppose one of you has a friend, and you go to him at midnight and say, friend, let me have three loaves of bread because another friend has arrived and I have nothing to set before him. And he's, it's midnight, he says, He's behind the door. He says, look, I'm tired. I'm asleep. My children are in bed. I don't have time for this. Go away. And Jesus says, persist. Keep knocking. And eventually he will respond just because of your persistence. So ask. So the moral of this is ask and it will be given to you. Search and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. And everyone who searches finds it. Everyone who knocks, the door will be open to him. That's a guarantee right there. Now, we all say, wait a second. I think I've knocked a couple of times. And I, <laughs> you say to me, what does this mean? He goes on to say, is there anyone among you who, if your child asks for fish, will give a snake instead of a fish? Or if your child asks for an egg, will give a scorpion? If then you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Give the what? You see, when, we, when I search and ask and knock, I'm searching and asking and knocking for a raise, you know, or to, to have this ache in my back go away, or to... You see what I mean? To have some kind of success or something. And this, suddenly you say, the Heavenly Father is going, when you knock and search and ask, the Heavenly Father is going to give you what you're knocking and searching and asking for, namely, the Holy Spirit. Well, you say, wait a minute, I wasn't knocking and searching and asking for that. And that's because I have this, seek, I have this, I don't want to change the Holy Writ, you know, but I have this sneaking suspicion that the historical Jesus actually said this slightly differently. He actually said something like this. If your child asks you for a snake, you give him a fish, don't you? Or if your child asks for a scorpion, you give him an egg. You ignore his stupid request and give him something that's good for him. I have no way of knowing, you see. But the point is, when it comes to the Holy Spirit, we have all these requests. And the only ultimately... What we want is the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit mean? The Holy Spirit 
is the whole Trinitarian economy. He says, the Heavenly Father will give you the Holy Spirit. So you, don't, you have the Father and the Spirit. Who's teaching you this? The Son. So the mediation of the Son is making it, it's breaking the news to you that something has to be given. It's a, the, the, we're in a universe which is a giving and receiving universe, a dying and a rising universe. It's a, it's a universe in which that whole economy is at work. So it's not a question of uh, getting and spending, Wordsworth, you know. It's a question of receiving and giving, receiving and giving. And the, and the Holy Spirit is, you know, they say every time money changes hands, a lawyer is there. Uh, well, in the, in the biblical world, every time a real exchange takes place, the Holy Spirit is there. Every time a real gift is given or received, the Holy Spirit is there. Uh, so the very fact that I <clears throat> so when Jesus said, when you ask it'll be uh, given, you knock it'll be opened, uh, search and you will find. Well, it's because the the act of asking is already happening under the promptings of the Holy Spirit. Prayer is the answer to prayer, in the sense that one is in communion with the Heavenly Father. One the the assumption of real prayer is based on the assumption that there is another who knows me better than I know myself and who's moving through my life in a decisive and definitive way and by turning myself over to him, uh, by, by surrendering myself, by making myself available, my life becomes what it's destined to be. So prayer becomes the answer to prayer. Even though, it, even though the little uh, checklist that I have in my head when I, when I pray uh, may be totally ignored. Well, you see, you see what I'm pointing. The point I'm trying to make here is that when Jesus says the, the Father will give the Holy Spirit, that's quite a revolution at the end of that little story. Because most of us, when we pray, don't realize that's what we're praying for. But apparently the scripture realizes that. Okay, now, there's something here about Jesus casting out a demon. And I want to connect this with a number of things. It says, now he was casting out a demon that was mute. When the demon had gone out, the one who had been mute spoke and the crowds were amazed. But some of them said he cast out demons by Beelzebul, the ruler of demons. Beelzebul means the Lord of the flies. Well, one doesn't want to be too clinical about biblical cures or exorcisms or whatever, but there's some interesting work, as you know, by um, Jean-Miguel Agulion and some other people. Uh, into the nature of possession. And it may be that that modern uh, psychological distresses are forms of possession, understood in terms of uh, the mimetic nature of human subjectivity. That is to say, all of us can say at any given time, I live, now not I, but fill in the blank, lives in me. Another lives in me. There is really another... I, there's a constituting other 
that that uh, is is the determining factor in my being. Who is this other? You see, is it? And, and what is the relationship between the subject and the other? Now, is is this other one with whom I have a positive rapport? Is this other making possible real freedom? Am I really coming alive? Or is this other just my boss? And his his voice is is it the super ego, the Freudian superego or something? Or is it is it some other that, that I'm totally scandalized by and caught up by in my social environment? Who I can't get out of my head because of that stupid thing she said to me at lunch. <laughs> Who is this other that's that at this moment is constituting my being? Well, somebody who is pathologically possessed is just suffering from the same thing, only in a much more profound way. And so, and I, again, I don't want to be too clinical about this and say, well, now we understand what these demons were in the first century. I don't. On the other hand, I, what we should avoid doing is saying, well, this is some kind of Oriental superstition and we should forget it and just just try to see if Jesus had anything wise to say and quote that. This is very important because all of us are demon-possessed. If not at this very moment, then before the day's over. You see what I mean? And so we had to – and there there are moments when we're not. There are moments when we're with Paul. We can say, I live now, not I, but by golly, Christ lives in me, and I'm free, and it's nice, and I like it, and I'd like to stay this way if I could. You see what I mean? So freeing us from these demons is a very powerful, important thing. And Jesus comes along. It's like forgiveness. We say, oh, the gospel says we should forgive people. Well, let's go out and forgive people. We'll give it a try. I mean, you say, you know, people go, people pay $125 an hour to people to, to, to for them to forgive them. I, look, I'll pay $125 an hour. I'll come every week for a year and a half. All I want is forgiveness. It doesn't work. It's much, well, I shouldn't say that, but it, it can't. Sometimes it's just money down the rat hole. Uh, it's not as easy as you think. It's not as easy to be forgiven. So this is a big problem. Likewise, Casting out demons is no easy matter, particularly, you see, if you do it the way Jesus does it. And the first thing they say is, ah, you're just like all the rest of them. We've seen people cast out demons, but you see, you're casting out demons by the power of demons. And I don't want to reduce the sort of metaphysical loftiness of the text here, but I think we could think about this a little bit. The de demon possession is a form of fixation. By the way, the clinical term for this is hysteria, clinical hysteria, psychopathological hysteria. And lots of times in psychopathological hysteria, you have two reactions. One is a kind of histrionics, which is hyperactivity on the part of the subject. And the other symptom is paralysis. And here's a form of paralysis. This, this person is mute, unable to speak. And so Jesus comes along and uh, frees him from this demon. So he's fixed. There's a fixation here. And so the, I think the accusation, you're doing this by the power of Beelzebub, by the power of demons, is that you're just using the fixation business in order to cure this guy of a fixation. In other words, you're doing what the psychoanalysts do in transference. 
you come into a psychoanalyst and you say, I've got to, I live now, not I, but Rosemary lives in me, or my father lives in me, or, you know, whoever, whatever, those, that whole complex of others is driving me nuts and paralyzing my life, they live in me. And the, and the therapist sits there and nods and says, okay, well, just watch me for a while, focus on me for a while. Freud's very explicit about this. We've gone into this in the past, but... Uh, it's clear this transference is the re is a replacing of all of that pathological otherness with the otherness of the therapist. And so I would say the accusation here, translated from first century into 20th century jargon, would be an accusation that would be appropriately addressed to modern psychoanalysis. Now, I'm not trying to scapegoat modern psychoanalysis. They, it takes, it's an attempt to alleviate a very serious problem. But it's, Freud, Freud and others recognized that its power had to do with transference. And the transference itself was problematic. You see, it was a kind of a cure, but was it really a cure? It's a kind of a methadone program for otherness, the problem of otherness. You know, you're able to kick the habit that's killing you, uh, but can you kick this habit? It's not as pathological, it's not as, doesn't drive you as crazy, it doesn't, you know, condemn you to as much depression and uh, et cetera, et cetera, but how long does it last? Can't, does it, you see what I'm saying? It's that kind of a thing. And so they're saying to Jesus, you're just doing this, you're curing this man's fixation with another fixation. That would be true, except for the Trinity, because... You know, when I do these things, whatever I'm reading at the time comes into my mind. I've been reading this book, which has, it's just a very heady kind of a book, but it has a discussion in it that, about the difference between icons and idols. And an idol would be where one fixes one's fascination on the thing itself. You see what I mean? And an icon is something more mysterious which draws all that fascination directly into it in exactly the same way and moves it out beyond it. Now, it's not as though the icon is a symbol for something else because that's not Trinitarian. The Son is not simply a pointer to the Father. The Father and I are one. It's mysterious, but it's not idolatrous. And I think that what Jesus is being accused of here is a, is a kind of psychological form of idolatry. You're just substituting one fixation for another. But an, but an icon, and Jesus is, by the way, in, Paul, in uh, Colossians, Paul says, he is the icon of the unseen God. It's translated, he is the image of the unseen God, but the Greek word is icon. Jesus is the icon of the unseen God. So the reason they're wrong in saying that he's casting out demons by the power of demons is because he is the icon of the unseen God. And it's that that's, that's freeing this. It's that movement of the Trinitarian revelation that frees this man from his, his demon possession, I would say. And then the text says, Others to test Jesus, kept demanding from him a sign from heaven. But he knew what they were thinking and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself becomes a desert. 
and house falls on house. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. Now this goes to an anthropological problem. First of all, they demand a sign. That means they're still caught up in magical thinking and in the whole primitive sacred system and everything else. Jesus is still addressing the issue of whether or not he's casting out Satan by Satan, whether or not he's casting out demons by demons. If a kingdom is divided against itself, it becomes a desert. House falls on house. This is not an architectural reference. House falls on house. It means clans fall on clans. It means the Hatfields and the McCoys. It means what's happening all over the world today. You see. If the thing begins to fall apart, you see, if Yugoslavia falls apart, house falls on house. Clan falls on clan. Ethnic group falls on ethnic group. You see what I mean? That's what it means. Once the power of Satan is broken, Satan means the accuser. The accuser is responsible for, in the old order of things, is responsible for the social unanimity. How do you build social unanimity? You have an accuser whose accusations stick. That means that the accused one, or subgroup, gets excluded, and the community of accusers becomes unanimous. That's the, that's the source of of unanimity and cultural cohesion in the old sacred system. And now Jesus is saying, if a kingdom is divided against itself, if Satan is divided against himself, the thing falls apart. The sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. Clan falls on clan. And each clan, you, the subdivisions just keep going. And then each clan subdivides. And then you have clans falling on clans and little little subgroups inside the clans falling on each other and families turning on each other. And inside each one of us, divisions taking place. The whole key to, the, to, to unity in the old order is destroyed. And all of those, all the you know, unity in all of its registers begins to collapse. And this is a very powerful theme in this part of the gospel. I'll bring out several of them. There are places where Jesus is constantly talking about division, breaking apart. He's, he's in, he understands that something, this whole system that's held together by something that's going to be exposed by the cross is going to fall apart. Now, Gerard, who's you know my teacher, has done a really wonderful thing with this Satan casting out Satan. Can Satan cast out Satan? The answer is yes. That's how it's always done. At one level, the answer is yes. That is to say, Satan is the one who says, ah, there's Satan right there. We've got to get rid of him. That's the problem. As soon as we get rid of Satan, we'll be, everything will be fine. We know who the satanic one is. So let's cast out the satanic one. And the one who says, let's cast out the satanic one, and generates that social unanimity is the new Satan. So Satan is always casting out Satan. It's how the system works. The problem is, can Satan cast out Satan once the system is exposed for what it is? Once we know that that's what's happening, and then the answer is no. Then you get the whole. Then you get the crisis of modernity. We know too much. We know too much. 
And it's not because we're smart. It's because of the epistemological revolution and moral revolution of the New Testament. It's finally catching up with us. So before moving on, just notice the emphasis here on division. If Satan is also divided against himself, can his kingdom stand? Division. So then Jesus says, but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out, then the kingdom of God has come to you. And I read this, understand this, in terms of the iconic nature of the Son in Trinitarian terminology. Uh, that is to say, he, he cast out demons by becoming the uh, revelation of the Father, by putting this demon-possessed one in touch with the living God. Uh, that's, it's not another fixation on another human other, unless that other human other is the icon of the Father, which is what Paul says Jesus is. But then Jesus uses this little metaphor. When a strong man fully armed guards his castle, his property is safe. But when one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away his armor in which he has trusted and divides his plunder. Now this is quite a quite a muscular sort of metaphor. Right? This this strong man, fully armed, has in, been in charge of this castle since the beginning of the human culture. See? And that's what you get from other things we'll get to in a, in a little bit since the foundation of the world. But if one stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him and takes away his armor in which he is trusted and divides his plunder. Divide, this is what I want to call attention to. The division of that. The falling apart of that. Now, you say, how does Jesus do this? Does he do it the way the Crusaders did, put a cross on your arm and go kill the infidel? Jesus doesn't do this. He conquers this one. He becomes stronger than this one who is the strong man fully armed by dying on the cross. That's the, that's the unbelievable, breathtaking miracle at the heart of the New Testament. He destroys that satanic power by going right to its center, becoming the object of its violence, and shattering the myth that justifies the violence. And then, that strong one, who is a synonym for Satan the accuser, is the one who has generated all the unanimity and he is, because of that unanimity, cultural life has been possible. So you have social unanimity plus all of the, all of the benefits of cultural life, all the riches of cultural life. And now the unanimity breaks up and starts to fall into division. And all his plunder, you could say this is the riches of cultural life, begin to fall apart. Then Jesus says, Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And there you have it again, scatters. And again, this for me is this idea of the train is leaving the station, folks. The old way of gathering is being subverted by the cross. The cross is the way in which we human beings have gathered since time immemorial. It's how we do it. We find a common enemy and we generate a 
cultural unanimity or a function, something that functions uh, as such because of that uh, accusatory satanic uh, mechanism. But it, once it's exposed and our empathy for the victim of, of it all is aroused, the thing starts to fall apart. And then we have this very serious question. How are we going to gather ourselves up? You see? Now, Jesus knows we will all be scattered at the cross. And the way we're gathered up, this ties into something that will come later on. The way we're gathered up is by hearing the cock crow. That's how we're gathered up, fundamentally. And the, and the crowing of the cock is a synonym, as, as I see it, for the Holy Spirit. And that's why, if you blaspheme against the Holy Spirit, he says, if you, if you, uh, if you curse the Son of Man, you can be forgiven. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven because it's the crowing of the cock, which is the recognition of my complicity in all of that, and the sorrow for it, and the opening out of life at the at the at the pit of that sorrow, and so on. That's the real breakthrough. So he says, it, and that's when we begin to be gathered with him. On the other side of that breakthrough, we begin to be gathered with him. And so he, here, this is another one of those uh, faintly apocalyptic passages. You'd hardly recognize it, but. Whoever does not gather with me, scatter. Uh, but here's a passage which I think has to be correlated with that. We come back now to the problem of casting out the demon. Moderns, because we moderns believe in the myth of autonomous individuality, we say, well, look, uh, I want to get rid of these demons, but I don't want to substitute Dr. So-and-so, who's my psychoanalyst, for them, I want to just be me. I want to be me. See? <laughs> and that's because we're totally naive. We don't realize that everybody has a constituting other or a whole collection of them. So we want to say, we just want to clear it out. I just want to clear this out, get rid of it, so I can just be at home with myself again. Well, the gospel has a, has a uh, cure for that myth in a way. It says when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person it wanders through the waterless regions looking for a resting place but not finding any. It says I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes it finds it swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and live there and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Now I said some not terribly flattering things about psychoanalysis and conventional psychotherapy but you could say at least the thing about you have to say about psychoanalysis is that it substituted one for whoever whatever the problem of the other was uh, but in the world today we live in today you see increasingly that the problem is a whole multitude of others that's why we everybody's caught up in fashion it's one after another after another you know who's Who's it going to be now? Who's the latest per person who is the constituting other in my life? You know, so it's constantly evolving, or there's a whole cluster of them. So here's the idea again of multiplicity, unity breaking down into multiplicity. 
The demon is cast out. That's a good thing. But if you do not gather with him, you get scattered. And that's at the psychological level as well as at the cultural level. And they go absolutely uh, together, you see. The breaking down of coherence. And then you get, and I was going to save this to talk about it as a sin, as a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You get finally the, the sort of celebration that that's the fact, you know. You get the, you get the, uh, the uh, protean self by, uh, what's his name, the psychohistorian, Robert J. Lipton. The protean self. Well, that's the self that just changes and evolves and goes from one thing to another, as though that's not a recipe for madness. You see. Uh, now, the, the and the, and philosophical and literary deconstruction. There, there's you know the signifiers have no have no fixed reference. Everything floats. Nothing really holds together. We should celebrate this. This is a big breakthrough. This is liberty. This is free fall. It's madness. You see. Now, there's truth to it, in the sense that a lot of those old Systems were were idolatrous systems, and they and they were social constructs, and they need to be deconstructed. I'm getting a little too carried away into areas I really don't know anything about. But the point is, we live in a world that's now celebrating this this disintegration, as though it and you know it's like the person who's jumped off the top floor of a very high building, he passes the thirtieth floor, and he says everything's good so far. This, we're, this is falling apart. It's very serious business. And I think the day will come that people will be able to read that passage which says, if you do not gather with me, you scatter, and they'll feel the, the apocalyptic power of that passage. And the same with this passage about the seven demons. The, by the way, it says these demons went out looking for a resting place and could not find one. And Augustine had the answer to that. I am restless. We are restless, he says, until we rest in thee. By the way, when I say that, we are restless until we rest in thee, I should re I remind myself, the one, the thing about the Lord's Prayer that I did, meant to say I didn't say is that it's plural. He's, he says, you want to know how to pray? Here's how you pray. Our Father, give us this day. We're in this together. This is not some, this is not some kind of, uh, you know, isolated... Uh, uh, hero with a thousand faces. <laughs> this is we're in it together. This is a community. We're not isolates. Okay. Question of division still comes up again. Jesus says, "Do you think I've come to bring peace? No, I tell you, rather division. From now on, five in one household will be divided: three against two, and two against three." They will be divided father against son, and son against father, and mother against daughter, and daughter against mother, and mother-in-law against daughter-in-law, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. What's that mean? I mean, you see there? It means that this division, that, the, that even those institutions that are most intimate, to the extent that they rely on this old mechanism for generating their coherence and their glue, they will fall apart. And we all know in our in our family lives how little family tensions can be papered over if we can find a little gossip about something's happening down the street, you know, or across town, or some other part of the family that we can fuss about. This is what happens in the the sort of black sheep of the family uh, syndrome. 
where you, you bring in anything, politics, uh, you know, there's tensions. Well, look, let's, let's uh, bitch and moan about uh, what's happening in Washington or something like that. To the extent that we use those mechanisms of finding an other on whom to, on whom to place all our tensions and frustrations and resentments and send them out as the scapegoat ritual does, if we still do that, it won't work, and so we'll end up with that. We'll end up with division, even in the most intimate kind of institutions, which is the family. So that's pretty powerful. And all we have to do is look around. It's happening. We live in a world where things are falling apart that way, precisely that way. I, I, I go back to something a long time ago, Salty, you'll remember this, a um, Swiss psychologist, psychiatrist, uh, Guggenbull Craig, wrote a book on marriage. And he's a, a Jungian. And he said the first thing you have to ask about marriage is whether it is a welfare institution or a soteriological institution. This is a, a soteriological meaning salvation. Does it have to do with welfare or salvation? And if it's a welfare institution, then you have to approach it a certain way, you know. But if it's a soteriological institution, if it has to do with salvation, it's a different thing. And that's the way we have to look at life. Is life a welfare operation? Are we trying to maximize pleasure and minimize pain and uh, have as much fun as we can? Or does it have to do with salvation? Does it have, does it have to do with truth? And I say, I sit up here at saying these things, a sack of sinfulness, cowardly. Am I ready for the cross? No. Nevertheless, I have to say, this is what it says to us. If we're asked to be icons of Christ, that takes place at the cross. Take up your cross and follow me. But when Jesus says, to be gathered with me, he has to be talking about the cross. There are a couple of tough passages we should turn to, and one is this. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that can do nothing more, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the authority to cast you into hell. Dum da dum dum. Hey, that's pretty heavy. Now, wait a minute. We're in the New or Old Testament here. Right. Let me get this straight, okay? Jesus says, yes, I tell you, fear him. So you got it? Fear, fear, fear. Kill, hell, fear. Kill, hell, fear, fear. See that? Woo, woo. Next verse. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. But even the hairs of your head are all counted. Do not be afraid. You are of more value than all those sparrows. God loves you. Do not be afraid. Wait a minute. He just said, fear him who, ha who after he has killed you can cast you into hell. I tell you, fear him. And now he said, now, wait a minute. Is he talking about the same person? Now, it's true that the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. That's true. In other words... This game is for keeps. 
we're playing for high stakes and it's for keeps so there's something there but I think we have to border on the scandalous and say wait a second this I think is the Lucan Jesus subverting the old notion of God from within who is the one who can kill me and drag me into hell who can kill me and drag me into hell in Dante's Inferno I've referred to this many times at the pit of hell which is frozen which is a marvelous thing you see to have hell frozen that's great a great Dantean breakthrough just before Dante gets to Satan himself he comes upon these two figures Count Ugolino and the Archbishop Ruggieri and these two figures spent their life energy hating and opposing each other and they killed the Archbishop killed Count Ugolino and his sons in this terrible way and Count Ugolino is so filled with hate and vengeance and resentment for that that he's going to spend all eternity eating the back brain out of the head of the Archbishop Ruggieri and Dante comes upon this scene and he it's the most appalling scene in the inferno in a way so that's comes to mind when one says who can kill you and drag you into hell is it God the God that Jesus is revealing who's the father whose infinite love and forgiveness is boundless who will go who will not only touch lepers but will touch moral lepers in the midst of their moral leprosy will go anywhere to find these people in need of forgiveness and forgive them will do anything will climb the cross in order to forgive the world its sin that's the God he's revealing is this the God that can kill you and drag you into hell no I think there is there are demigods you see there are these demons that can kill us and drag us into hell but they're the that Ugolino was one of those for Archbishop Ruggieri and Archbishop Ruggieri was one of those for Count Ugolino that's I think what we have to be warned against and why do we need to be warned against it I think we need to be warned against it because to say that God is the God of love is to take the lid off of the old sacred system which is which is filled with with punishments and terrors for those who break the laws and if you take the lid off then all the responsibility for maintaining some kind of civility and sanity falls on our shoulders later on Jesus says why do you not judge for yourself what is right when you go with your accuser before a magistrate on the way make an effort to settle the case or you may be dragged before the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and the officer throw you into prison it's another one of those images but it has to do with conflict with another human being he's it, the, the message is here you better solve that because the mechanism for solving it for you which is to resolve you know Pilate and, and 
Herod hated each other until the crucifixion gave, brought them, made them friends. The old way of solving these antagonisms is the old scapegoating mechanism. It's going to break down. You're going to have to solve them yourself. And if you don't, these things can drag you into hell. The constituting other can become your hated enemy. And, that, and the whole thing can drag you right into hell. That's what I would say because it sits right there next to Jesus saying, God loves you intimately. Do not be afraid. And we have to see what a radical juxtaposition is right there in, the, in those verses. Another version of that occurs again in chapter 12. Jesus had, there's a parable about a prudent manager uh, whom his master put in charge of his servants to give them their allowance of food at the proper time. You, I think, again, there's a Eucharistic image here. And blessed is the servant his master finds at work when he arrives. Uh, but then he says there's those servants who think, well, he's taking a long time. And so the servant begins to beat other servants and to drink and get drunk. And this, again, is a question of the eschatological horizon. Think, oh, this is... The second coming is not happening or something. I don't, and so the whole, the real vivid meaning and tension of the, of the Christian commitment begins to fall apart. And Jesus says, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect it and an hour when he does not know and will cut him to pieces. The, the word here, the Greek word is the word for dichotomy. He will dichotomize him. And here you again, scatter division, and now we're having scattered division take place. The person himself is going to be you see, scattered and divided inside himself. And I think we, there's no reason to read this in terms of some kind of sacrificial judge coming in and murdering this guy. He who does not gather with me scatters. I think it has to be placed in that context. But it's a very real threat. It's a real threat. It is things will fall apart. The old way of keeping things together is not going to work. And so we'll, we'll find ourselves being torn asunder psychologically as well as socially. I don't want to dwell on this because there's so much more to do, but these things fell uh, uh, in front of me in the last uh, week or so. And one's a story from the International Herald Tribune about riots in London earlier this month. Quote, police are the anvil on which these youths are beating out their frustration and anger, the West Yorkshire assistant chief constable said. Quote, they seem to be alienated from every conceivable part of the society from which they are drawn. End quote. See? Division, breakdown, the old unities, the old way of generating social solidarity is falling apart. Uh, there was an article in the San Francisco paper about the crisis in Sierra Leone. It, it has to do with the fact there's a civil war going on there and nobody can figure out who's fighting it. It says the real problem is that no one seems quite sure who's fighting whom or why. Quote, that's the strange thing about this war, said lawyer Joseph Cole, who's trying to organize peace talks but doesn't know whom to invite. Quote, 
We have no idea who these so-called rebels are. We have no idea what they're fighting for. And we have no idea who the leader of the rebel movement is. There are no facts. The only fact is that we're at war. One more thing here, same story. Quote, most African countries are not in danger of total collapse, but as Liberia's experience makes clear, this is an affliction once caught for which there is no known cure. There is no known cure. So it, it's metastasis. It's a kind of metastasizing of a scandalous virus that there's no way of curing because the old sacred system for turning all that violence into turning all that random violence into unanimous violence the old system for doing that has broken down uh, so I read it because because um, this part of Luke keeps talking about division things are going to fall apart okay now there's something I think really important we have to look at here at the end of chapter 11 and then again in chapter 12 in Luke. When the crowds were increasing, Jesus began to say, this generation is an evil generation. It asks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Now, if you'll notice, there's no reason to mention the crowds here. It says he could have, this thing could have started this way. He said to them, this generation is an evil generation etc. But it says, when the crowds were increasing, he said that. And then he goes on to say, for just as Jonah became a sign to the people of Nineveh, so the Son of Man will be a sign to this generation. The queen of the south, the queen of Sheba, will arise at the judgment with the, with the people of this generation and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to listen to the wisdom of Solomon and see something greater than Solomon is here. The people of Nineveh will rise at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because they repented at the proclamation of Jonah and see something greater than Jonah is here. All this talk about this generation, this generation, this generation. What what does that mean? Is it is this one of those things where people say, Well, see, Jesus was this is some of the biblical scholarship they say, Well, Jesus was this was this uh, sort of fiery apocalyptic rabbi. And he thought the end was coming right away, and it didn't. So, you know, he let's search through what he said and see if he had any wise things to tell it. Because obviously he was, his apocalyptic predictions were all off. Well, there's that reading. If we understand this generation. Why would he talk about this generation at this time? He didn't talk about it in the, in the abstract. He talked about it when the crowds began to gather. And I suggest, I don't, I'm not saying the historical Jesus meant this or Luke meant this. I'm just saying at the level of the text, I suggest that we read this, this generation in terms of the way in which we generate our communities. This generation, the crowds are gathering, and Jesus is suddenly having something to say about this generation. The word means to generate. So it's the word genesis. It's from the root word genesis. It means the beginning the, the generative thing. And you know, Robert Hammer and Kelly has this thing about the, the generative mimetic scapegoating mechanism. And it's the generativity of that mechanism that's called into question. Heraclitus says, war or vi uh, violence, polemos, is the father and king of all things. You see, it generates culture.
It can destroy culture, but it also generates culture. It has generativity. And they want a sign. That means they're still in magical thinking, still in mythical thinking. They want a sign, some glorious sign. They're not going to get a sign. What are they going to get? Solomon and Jonah. What's Solomon and Jonah? It's the scriptures. You're not going to get a sign. Jesus is taking the Hebrew scriptures and throwing them at the, at, you know, onto the desk of this generation. You want a sign? There it is. You figure it out. As soon as the cross happens, you go back to these scriptures and the nickel will drop. You don't get a sign. You work this thing out. You'll see. I mean, I think that's the brilliance of this Lucan passage. It's We shouldn't, you know, scholars go back and say, oh, Jonah, what's that mean? Was it three days in the belly of the whale? It must be the resurrection. Or Jonah preached uh, repentance and so on. Well, all of that's true. But I think it's... I think it's a reference to the wisdom and the prophetic power of the biblical tradition. You got a text. You don't get signs from heaven. You got a text. We're not talking magical stuff here. We're talking about coming to your senses. You can't understand the story until you get to the end. And when you get to the end, you go back, you'll be able to get it. If you do it carefully, that's what the first Christians did. They went back and, and they read Second Isaiah and they, the nickel dropped. So, so there's that. So you don't get a sign, you just get the scriptures. But I want to go back to this, this generation. At the beginning of chapter 12, it says, Meanwhile, when the crowd gathered by the thousands, now you have a big gathering, see, really big, so that they were trampling on one another, then it just, that's like it starts to boil. The whole thing is starting to heat up. Then he began to speak, to his disciples, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees. That is their hypocrisy. And the yeast of the Pharisees is, what's that? It's what you have to be aware of under those circumstances, when the crowd is gathering and their tensions building. And yeast is what can turn that thing into a rising loaf, can give and animate that, that sort of inanimate social event. And they're the ones who come in and they know exactly who's to blame and what the rules are and who the good guys are and the bad guys are. And they know how to turn that thing into a galvanizing event. And Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees. So I want to talk about his condemnation of the Pharisees and the lawyers because in it is the, is the definition, in a way, of this generation. Luke takes advantage of one little story. Jesus is invited to a dinner at a Pharisee's house, and he, didn't, he doesn't go through the ritual washings, and the Pharisee is offended because he doesn't go through the ritual washing. And so the Luke and Jesus just unloads on the Pharisees and the lawyers. And in the course of that, a lawyer who's been offended by what Jesus says about them, which is that they're all, they're all superficial uh, people completely caught up in religious rules and regulations don't mean anything. And this lawyer is now lawyer here's a canon lawyer. He's a scriptural lawyer. He's a he's a he's a scriptural expert. And he says, uh, "You offend us by this." And so Jesus answers the following way. And this is really true. I mean, I think I've dealt with this many many times in other contexts. But here's what he says: "Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets, whom your ancestors killed." 
So you are witnesses and approve of the deeds of your ancestors, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Uh, w they look back and they say, oh, well, our ancestors, they killed the prophets. We would never have done that because uh, now we revere the prophets. So we build the tombs of the prophets. We turn the prophets' tombs into a sacred shrine. The sacrality of that shrine was generated by the murder of these prophets. So even though we're now scapegoating our fathers, the way our fathers scapegoated the prophets, thinking that we're outside the system now, thinking that we're, our hands are clean, all we're doing is laying the blame on somebody else. Nobody is saying, I too am a crucifier. We're all just saying, oh, well, I wouldn't have done that. I, you see, so it's all part of the way this system insinuates itself when it begins, when its moral breakthrough begins to percolate to the surface. So now we, we garnish the altars or the garnish the tombs of the prophets. That's a way of exonerating ourselves at our father's or our, our, uh, our predecessor's expense and, uh, and not take any responsibility for it. We're still using that same mechanism of generation. That's why it's important because he says, Jesus says, this generation will be charged with the blood of all the prophets since the foundation of the world. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, the blood of all the prophets will be charged against this generation. Now, that's ridiculous. If, by generation, he means those people alive when he's talking. It's totally ridiculous. This generation must mean something else. I think it means what I've been saying it means. It's the way we generate. This generation is generating that social consensus at the expense of those, pe those people we murder. It's, he mentions only two, Abel and Zechariah. Zechariah is a prophet, we know that. Abel, is Abel a prophet? How could we understand Abel as a prophet? Unless the definition of prophet is someone who has been killed and whose murder, in retrospect, becomes revelatory. All of that blood is going to fall on the heads of this generation. This generation is us. Those of us who still live in a world that uses, to some extent, the old scapegoating mechanism to, to generate its, its uh, social unanimity. It falls on us.